Welcome to the Florida Bar Podcast, where we highlight the latest trends in law office and legal practice management to help you run your firm. Brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by Legal Fuel, the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar on Legal Talk Network. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm a Senior Practice Management Advisor at the Bar and one of the hosts for today's show, which is being recorded from our offices in Tallahassee, Florida. Hello, I'm Carla Eckhart, Practice Management Advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So this month, we're focusing on HR risk management in the law firm setting. And joining us to discuss this important topic is Deborah Stevens-Minnis. Deborah Minnis is a shareholder with the Owsley McMullen firm here in Tallahassee. She has over 30 years of administrative law and governmental experience. She worked as an assistant attorney general representing state agencies for over six years, handling civil rights and employment discrimination litigation matters. Deborah has worked with both the Leon County and Gadsden County school boards handling matters of employment and civil rights issues. Her current practice areas include advising clients on complying with the wage and hour laws, the Family and Medical Leave Act, and employment discrimination laws. She is an experienced litigator and represents private and public sector clients before state and federal courts and state administrative agencies. She's also taught as an adjunct professor at the Florida State University College of Law. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Deborah, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to specialize in labor and employment law. As you indicated earlier, I started my legal career with the uh, Attorney General's Office here in Tallahassee, and after about a year and a half, I was moved into the employment law section. Uh, I found the work very interesting and very challenging and decided to continue uh, down that path, uh, even after I left the Attorney General's Office and went into the private sector. Interesting. It's also something that, uh, unfortunately, a lot of attorneys, especially those running solo and small firms, are not specialized in. So Mm -hmm. that's what we want to talk about today. Employment law is not limited to a single body of law. It's spread across a number of federal, state, and local laws and constantly changing. Um, So for purposes of this discussion, we wanted to focus mainly on anti-discrimination statutes. Um, I guess the big one we can start with is Title VII. That is correct. Title VII is the one that um, most people are familiar with because of the sexual harassment, sexual discrimination piece. However, it also covers race, national origin, color, and religion. And in Florida, there's also a piece of marital discrimination that uh, the Florida Civil Rights Act has added. So what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see employers making that violate Title VII and then leave them open to legal liability? Um, Some of the bigger mistakes that I see, um, because the biggest area now is the hostile work environment area, and because it's not a direct, um, what I call direct discrimination, you're not using a racial epitaph or 
inappropriate um, terminology for uh, a female or a male employee, but the atmosphere in the job office is just very harsh or very hostile. Uh, In a lot of instances, employers don't realize that it's not a matter of getting used to it or getting over it. They may need to step in at some point and take action to make it stop happening. And before we get on to the specifics of sort of sexual harassment or hostile work environment, a lot, I feel like a lot of law firms, small and and medium-sized law firms may say, well, that doesn't apply to us. Um, When do uh, these federal anti-discrimination statutes apply, and more specifically Title VII, to specific employers? Uh, Title VII applies anytime you have 15 or more employees during a 20-week period in the current year or the preceding year. Uh, It doesn't have to be a consecutive 20-week period, uh, but if during that uh, year you've got 15 or more employees, you're covered by most of the employment discrimination laws. Age discrimination is 20, but everything else is 15, including the Americans with Disabilities Act. So take us through what constitutes a hostile work environment. Well, one of the key factors, um, especially in the sexual harassment arena, is that the cases that get a lot of publicity are what I call the sexually motivated cases, where someone is, you know, grabbing someone else or uh, asking them out, implying if you don't do certain things for me, then I'm not going to promote you or I'm going to fire you. But it can be short of that. It can simply be an environment where uh, one sex is treated more hostily than the other, uh, belittling language, yelling at that particular group, or making their whole work environment difficult simply because of their gender. And the reason I'm not just saying women is because it can also be a hostile work environment for males. It does not just go one way. What we hear about most are the women who are sexually harassed or who are subject to a hostile work environment, but it can be um, males as well. And what happens with those situations is that the environment has to get to the point that it is interfering with their ability to do their job, is consistent, is pervasive, uh, so it's not just a a one-off situation where the person says something inappropriate, but there is a certain level that it has to meet in order to be legally viable. So it's, you know, oftentimes we hear about bullying and workplace bullying. Um, Is this a legal claim in U.S. courts or would it fall under hostile work environment? How does that work? If the bullying is uh, pervasive and consistent and meets the criteria, and it is based on one of the protected classes, then it could rise to the level of being actionable under uh, one of the discrimination laws. If the person is simply just a bully and they bully everybody, that one's going to be a little bit harder to try to, to get it to the level of being actionable in court. You know, if they're just an obnoxious person and they're that way with everybody in the workplace, that would probably be a different matter. 
Hmm. Well, we, we've heard some shocking stories about incidents at firms. Carl and I both worked in law firms before we came to the bar. But we hear some things that never happened at our firms. But we've heard about an attorney who pretty regularly is throwing objects, office equipment into the wall, or an attorney who had an actual temper tantrum, kicking and screaming, and attorneys who make their staff cry regularly. And the first question, obviously, is always, oh my gosh, what did you do? But then we always hear people say, oh, was it a partner or a shareholder? Can you speak to why this is a very dangerous approach to deciding how the firm should respond? To me, it's a dangerous approach because the employer, meaning the firm, is the entity that will be sued if a discrimination claim is filed. And it's the firm that will have to pay whatever the damages or relief is going to be, not necessarily the individual shareholder. So the fact that it's a shareholder does not insulate the firm from being sued. In fact, it may make it even more uh, of an issue because you've got someone who arguably is in management who's causing the issue. So is there a difference, I suppose, when the harasser is in management as opposed to a non-supervisory employee or even a third party? Are there different uh, actions in which, you know, the employer could be liable or, you know, where, where they're just not liable at all? Absolutely. Um, when you have a situation where it is a, a co-worker or an independent contractor or someone outside the firm, the liability attaches based on a new or should have known criteria. So if it's a situation that uh, management and firm didn't know about because the person didn't report it or um, they weren't just weren't aware of it, then you have, a, you have more defenses to why the action continued or how it got to the level it did. If the harassment is by a supervisor, and particularly a direct supervisor who has some control over what happens to the alleged victim, most courts see it almost as a strict liability situation. If the person can prove that the work environment meets the criteria of a hostile work environment, the courts aren't really going to care whether you knew or should have known about it. They're going to say you're responsible as an employer for prohibiting that and making sure it doesn't happen. So it raises the bar. And when we saw you speak, I, it was interesting. You included what seemed like a small detail, um, but it seemed very important that a Title VII trial is always decided by a jury. Why is this important for employers to know? To me, it's important for an employer to know because basically... You have 12 people who don't know you, don't know anything about you, don't know anything about your firm, and they're going to be deciding whether you violated someone's rights or not as an employer or allowed someone's rights to be violated. And when you think about the fact that in a litigation situation, the accuser gets to go first, the employer is always behind the eight ball, so to speak, because the accuser gets to lay out his or her case first, and you're having to come behind that and convince these 12 people 
that what the person they just heard from said is not true. And in that situation, so if someone is, they're bringing a claim. So if it's a hostile work environment, it's the whole firm. Do they have to prove intentional infliction of emotional distress or is is that an entirely separate action? Um, Intentional infliction of emotional distress is actually a separate action. Under the uh, Title VII and other civil rights and discrimination laws, there is a section that allows for the recovery of what we call compensatory damages, which will include your emotional distress damages. So, for example, if it's a hostile work environment situation and the person did not lose anything monetarily, uh, they could still uh, request emotional distress damages without having to file a separate intentional infliction of emotional distress claim. That would be part of what they could recover as part of the Title VII process. And while we're on this topic, you know, training is subjective. I feel like sometimes people that attend training don't realize it's about them. So apart from addressing the issue individually with a person, do you recommend that law firms conduct harassment training overall? And what should it include? Uh, Yes, I I definitely suggest that law firms conduct uh, harassment training. Uh, And you're right. A lot of times people say, well, I've never done that. I wouldn't do that to anyone. Or, uh, like I said before, they think as long as they're not, you know, acting sexually towards someone, that they're not creating a hostile work environment or they're not engaged in harassment. So I think training is very important. I think at a minimum, uh, the training should definitely include uh, examples of what a hostile environment is or could be. Uh, an explanation that is not just what we used to call the quid pro quo type of sexual harassment and that the person should be mindful of how they interact with uh, staff and, you know, with their fellow shareholders and, and partners because it's not just staff that can sue. Anyone who's an employee of the law firm can sue. And in a lot of law firms, even though you're a shareholder, you're also treated as an employee. So there could be suits generated from there. Um, There also should be a discussion on reporting. What to do if you think someone is, is being harassed or you see someone creating a hostile environment who the person is uh, at the firm that's responsible for getting that information so that the situation can be handled appropriately. So there's a myriad of of things. Um, Sometimes when I do training, I will talk to uh, the person who has uh, engaged me and get an idea of what their particular issues may be or situations that they're having at their uh, facility. And I'll make sure the basics are covered, but I'll also try to incorporate something that's a little more relevant to what they're actually experiencing. Can you give us, so if you're doing harassment training, I think a lot of times people need a real world anecdote or illustration. Can you can you give us a hypothetical of something that you've seen where you're trying to get someone to understand? Or a real life situation, yeah. just no don't names. mention names. <laughs> <laughs> just keep the names out of it, so you say. Exactly. Uh, well, there, there, I have come across situations where it's uh, an all-female or predominantly female um, work situation. And one particular person 
is very outspoken or very willing to share their personal uh, interactions with their significant other and do so on a fairly regular basis. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Do so on a fairly regular basis. Um, And it's... uh, pretty offensive to a a number of the other people in the workplace. And even though this person is not approaching them sexually, not interested in them sexually, it's creating a work environment that is very hostile for these individuals. Um, And so in that kind of situation, that that is one where um, you can call someone in to do a training and they cover the basics, but then they make sure they add in, you know, that it's not just you know, if you're sexually uh, interested in the person. But, you know, sometimes it can be the kind of conversations you're having, you know, talking loudly with your significant other on the phone about your adventures the night before. So there's a, there's a, a wide range of um, examples like that that I've had people call me in on. Um, one was a, a gentleman who liked to joke a lot. He thought it was joking. But a lot of the people, uh, particularly the women in the workplace, did not feel that it was very funny. Uh, But he did not believe he was engaged in any appropriate behavior because he hadn't grabbed anybody or propositioned anyone. Um, So those are some of the kind of uh, situations that I've uh, been involved in. What do you say to, uh, as you know, a lot of things have broken in the news, I've seen uh, men that are interviewed when they are covering stories of this that's saying, oh, well, I'm just never alone in a room with a female now. And, and you know, and that's, that's disheartening because uh, you would hope that everyone can conduct themselves with a professional behavior. And for women, you know, that could really limit your career if, if now you're not getting any mentoring or one-on-one time. What's the advice that you would give men that think that now they just can't ever be alone with a female? What I sometimes suggest um, in some of my trainings when I look out in the audience and I see the expression <laughs> on the, the men's mm-hmm. faces is that I try to give them a gauge that they can use that I think is helpful. And basically, I suggest that if it's something that you would not want to be said to your mother, daughter, wife, or sister, then perhaps it's something that should not be said. So that kind of gives them a guide to navigate whether it's crossing the line or not. You know, it's not like you said that every interaction between opposite sexes in the workplace is going to be a problem. And in fact, the courts have said they do not intend to be a super personnel department. That's why they, it has to reach a certain level in order for it to be actionable. But I, you know, I understand you know, their concern about, well, where is the line? But I hope right. that that's a, a, a gauge they can use to, to measure where that line is. Now, as far as harassment goes, again, sexual harassment claims are the most common, um, but it's essentially harassment based on a protected class. Um, and Correct. there are any number of protected classes in Title VII. Um, what are the elements of a claim, so to speak. You know, we talked about where is the line drawn? You know, like the harassment has to be unwelcome. You know, if you know, it's not necessarily harassment. If you're an employee and, you know, another employee are in a relationship, that may be against company policy, but 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's not necessarily harassment. So what are some of the elements of a harassment claim so we can sort of draw a line for people who mm-hmm. don't know where that line is? <laughs> uh, you're absolutely correct. Part of the inquiry is whether it is subjectively harassing to the person involved. Uh, there is another piece that looks at whether it's objectively harassing, whether someone looking in from the outside would see the behavior as creating a hostile work environment. And it's the, the types of things that I mentioned before, how often does it occur? How pervasive is it? What level of um, conversation is it? Is it intimidating? Is it threatening? Those are some of the things that the courts look at uh, to determine if it's getting to the level. Unfortunately, with a lot of things that involve um, interaction between individuals, there really is no bright line test. It's a combination of all of the information and behaviors and actions and statements that the court looks at to determine if it has met that threshold. And I'll give you an example, um, a case that is one of the seminal cases, uh, the Mendoza case. This was a situation where a gentleman would go around and sniff at this particular person, would stare at them, would sometimes make comments, but because it wasn't a daily thing and it wasn't pervasive and it happened on occasion, the court said that that didn't get to the level that they needed to take to get involved and take action. So it's, it's kind of hard to give you that bright line, but mm-hmm. um, that's kind of the things that they're looking for. Now, of course, there can be a situation where if it's really severe, I mean, if you, you know, kidnap someone and lock them in your office, then, of course, you don't have to deal with everyday or pervasive. Those are situations that, you know, go kind of up to the top quickly. And has that happened? Is that <laughs> Fortunately, I have not been asked about one of those. But there are cases about it. All right. If you're a law firm administrator and you are witnessing the behavior. Or a managing partner. I mean, right, right. whoever, you're, office manager, whatever you may yeah, be. You're in management, right. however, and you're witnessing the behavior. Does the person, I feel like so many times the person who's the on the receiving end of the harassment doesn't want to complain. They have a mortgage, they're supporting children, and they're like, I just don't want to derail my career. Because unfortunately, I think a lot of times that's the end result. Can the person who's the, you know, the partner or the uh, law firm administrator, can they take action or does the court always have to have uh, the person who received the harassment the testify? Right. If a managing partner or someone in the firm witnesses the behavior, they should take action. Uh, now, there are situations where if the managing partner didn't know about it and the person who's being harassed didn't tell anybody about it, then the court is going to say, well, you can't hold the employer responsible because they didn't know. Now, like I said, the, all, you know, all bets are off if it is a, a direct supervisor that's causing the harassment and is enough going on that everyone kind of knows that the hostile work environment is there and a supervisor is involved. That is generally not a good thing to um, ignore and not take action on. 
But if you are especially a managing partner or office manager and you've witnessed this, then you need to uh, report it and take some action to make it stop. And But there's always that weird situation because you kind of, if you're the law firm administrator, you're kind of, you're the advocate for the staff, but you're implementing what the shareholders want. And this has happened to me, and then I know this has happened, it's come up with other administrators. Uh, an employee will come to you and say, hey, I don't want you to do anything, but just as my friend, I wanted to tell you this. And, and I, when I was in that situation, I said, you know what, I'm so sorry, but because of my responsibilities at the firm, I can't not do anything. Right. Um, it's, it's, is that the situation? I mean, I don't, you know, you feel like you have to do the right thing right. regardless, even though they're, they're trying well, to you, say. Well, you can never guarantee, I suppose. Yeah. You can never guarantee confidentiality. You can, you know, respect the person's wishes, but I, I can't imagine. But down the road, if it becomes more severe right. and then it was something that you didn't act on and you were aware of it, you've put yourself in a strange and awkward right, position. Right, Document. Yeah. Yeah, your action is what I would recommend is that you cannot not take action. I know there's a double negative there, but <laughs> <laughs> we understand. <laughs> we understand. Well, and, and, you know, when we bring that up, that's kind of a separate claim. A lot of uh, office managers or legal administrators or any other, any other member of the staff, they're, they're concerned about retaliation, which is another claim in and of itself. You know, how can you prove retaliation mm-hmm. in those instances, you know, how can you show retaliation? What are so-called the elements, let's say, or the standards required to bring a retaliation claim? Uh, to bring a retaliation claim, you, of course, show that you engage in a protected activity, uh, first of all. Uh, and one way to show that is that, one, either you oppose um, discriminatory or hostile behavior, meaning, obviously, that you filed an internal complaint with someone uh, that, you know, this is going on, or I think I'm subjected to a hostile environment or being discriminated against, or uh, retaliation can occur uh, after someone has filed a charge with FCHR or EEOC, and that's uh, basically what they call a participation claim, meaning that you're participating uh, with FCHR and EEOC in um, prohibiting discrimination. Once you have engaged in a protected activity, if you suffer an adverse employment action, uh, the courts have, have gotten a little broader with what that means. It's not just firing, disciplining, terminating, failing to promote. There have been some cases where the person, uh, I think this in this particular case, the person was a single mom, and they moved her from a day shift to a night shift because that caused a hardship for her in uh, getting mm-hmm. child care issues. And the court saw that as an adverse employment action as to her particular situation. Then the third phase of that is to show a connection between the adverse employment action you suffered and the fact that you um, engaged in a protected activity. Timing can be a factor. So if within a day, two days, two weeks, all of a sudden this bad thing happens to you after you've engaged in a protected activity, that can get your case moved forward. It may not totally win it for you, but it can move it forward. Once you, you mean get there past- aren't coincidences? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I know. And now, once you get past three or four months, the courts look at it a little bit harder because that's kind of getting mm-hmm. farther away, unless there's some additional 
um, evidence. You know, for example, the person says, you shouldn't have done that to me. And then three months later, you get fired. That combo could get the case moved forward. Now, the thing with the retaliation claims is that the courts have said that it's a but-for proof pattern. And basically what that means is that if there was any other reason that came into play, the retaliation claim is probably not going to succeed. And to give you an idea of the uh, distinction, just straight race discrimination cases are what we call mixed motive cases, meaning that even if another factor came into play, if race also happened to be in there, you can move forward with the race discrimination case. But with the but-for claim, it has to be for that reason only. Does that make sense? I I do have a, yes, I I do have a question because I I feel like in a lot of sort of old school firms, the mentality is, well, if they don't like it, they can quit. Mm -hmm. Um, If the situation is so severe and pervasive that someone uh, is compelled to quit, um, is the employer suddenly, you know, are, are they free of any liability? No, they're not, uh, because at that point, it would be the adverse employment action would be a constructive discharge. So there you go. That's not an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you drive them out the door, you're right. not. Cl- right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the proof of constructive discharge is a little bit high, but mm-hmm. it's not unheard of that if the situation right. was so bad that even an objective person looking in would have said, hey, I wouldn't have stayed there either then, yeah, you could do constructive discharge. I want to pivot the conversation a little bit because something that comes up a lot and it seems just pretty straightforward is firm dress code. But when we saw you talk, it kind of opened our eyes that it's really a bit of a minefield. How do you address gender nonconformity in a dress code policy? It's interesting you should ask that. I just recently um, had an issue come up, not with an employee in the employment arena, but in um, a school-type setting where the student was biologically male but identified as female. And basically, uh, even in that area, the courts have said that they have the right to dress in the gender that they identify with. And when you look at the 11th Circuit uh, cases, which is the federal court that, um, the federal appellate court that controls in Florida, they do recognize gender nonconforming causes of action. So what that says to me, if you have a male who identifies as female and prefers to dress as a female and you say, no, you can only dress as a male, then basically you've discriminated against that person based on their gender because they are not conforming to the gender you believe they are. Okay. Particularly and, relevant today. Right. <laughs> so I would say with dress codes, if you have a dress code for women, you have a dress code for men, as long as they're meeting whatever the requirements are of the dress code that they identify with, then they're meeting your dress code. Right. Okay. And I love that we have you recording with us today because um, a very big case is coming before the Supreme Court today. And um, it's about LGBTQ workplace rights um, and whether workplace discrimination based on sex 
also encompasses gender identity. So I'm not asking you to, you know, um, no give, opinions. Yeah, we, we don't we don't need you to tell us how you think it's going to come. But I, I want can you give our listeners a little bit of background on on the elements of you know why this has shown up at the Supreme Court or or what it is they're hearing today. Um, my feeling about it is that at this point the circuit courts are in different places. Some are accepting uh, cases strictly on uh, gender discrimination or sexual orientation discrimination. Some are like the 11th Circuit, and it has to be gender non-conforming. So in the 11th Circuit, if you're a plaintiff and you file your complaint, you can't say, well, I'm being discriminated against based on my sexual orientation. The court's going to throw that out. It has to be gender nonconforming. So I think that this is a push to try to get kind of get it standardized mm-hmm. uh, throughout the country because once the if the Supreme Court issues a an opinion that sets out what the standard is, and for example, if the Supreme Court says yes, you can sue uh, based on sexual orientation under Title VII then the circuit courts have to follow that that precedent. And so would that change the current EEOC policy? Because it's it's our understanding that currently they say that it is illegal to discriminate based on um, gender identity. identity and sexual orientation. It won't change their policy. The thing with the EEOC policy is that it, I don't want to sound derogatory, but it is what it is, but the courts aren't mm-hmm. bound by the EEOC's policies and their interpretations of Title VII and some of the other regulations. Uh, As you can see, the courts can go off and do their thing based on their interpretation of the the statutes and the laws. Uh, So it probably wouldn't affect what EEOC is doing because they tend to uh, do a broader sweep uh, with Mm -hmm. who they include in their protections. But it could have a ripple effect for some of the um, the federal courts that have dealt with the issue. And now to pivot yet again, <laughs> there are other, again, we've already said this, but we'll keep saying it. Discrimination is not only sexual discrimination or mm-hmm. sexual harassment or race or color. Uh, there's also the Americans with Disabilities Act. And, and oftentimes employers don't know enough about this because they've never encountered it, you know, or they've never mm-hmm. uh, had a, someone apply for a position. You know, again, I'm talking in the, in the context of small to medium sized firms. They may not have had someone request an ADA accommodation or anything like that. So what are some basics that employers should know about ADA accommodations? Uh, well, first of all, it does apply if you have 15 or more employees and during the 20-week period, as I mentioned before. Um, the thing with the um, ADA is that it's not just uh, for people once they apply, but you could have an existing employee whose medical condition becomes a disability. And at that point, the person may come to you and need an accommodation to perform uh, the essential functions of their jobs. And according to the the law and the uh, cases, you have to go engage in an interactive process with that employee. Uh, So at some point, you can request medical information. Uh, You can sit down with the employee and discuss uh, what their limitations are and discuss what uh, accommodations 
may be available. You do not have to give them the accommodation they demand or want, but you do have to offer them a reasonable accommodation that will allow them to perform the essential functions of their job. And the term essential function is very important uh, because if it's just a, a minor part of what they do, uh, the courts you know, say, well, why don't you just eliminate that part of it? You know, for example, if you have um, a receptionist and basically her main duty is to answer the phone and on occasion she may have to run the mail through the postage machine, but that's not an essential function of her job. If she has a disability that she can no longer run the postage, the mail through the postage machine, then you can't refuse to, uh, or you can't make her continue to try to do that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because it's not an essential function of the job. Right. And then uh, sort of we're, we're jumping around here. We, we want to cover so much. We can probably talk <laughs> we, for like, we the next so 10 episodes. But there is this BFOQ, Bonafide Occupational Qualification. Uh, can you explain to our listeners what that is? Yeah, those are very, those are very tricky. Uh, it's, it's very hard to prove that a particular requirement is a bona fide occupational qualification. Right. There are some, you know, for, there are some instances where it could be, for example, if you have someone who's a delivery driver and the packages weigh at least, you know, 40 pounds, if that person cannot lift those 40 pounds, and lifting 40 pounds is a bona fide occupational qualification for that job, then it puts it in a whole different category. Now, if you're, you know, if you have a delivery service and basically what they deliver are envelopes or mail or things like that, and it doesn't require them to lift those packages except occasionally, I think the employer would be hard-pressed to try to treat uh, the 40-pound lifting requirement as a bona fide occupational qualification. So one of uh, sort of the more clear-cut examples of when a BFOQ applies is actors and actresses. Mm -hmm. If a particular movie is looking for someone for a very specific role, you know, if they're looking for a man, they want a man. If they're looking for a female, they want a female. If they're looking for someone with blonde hair, they want someone with blonde hair. Um, You know, so it, it varies. But is a BFOQ ever a defense for policies that discriminate on the basis of race or color? Other than in a situation like like acting, <laughs> the actor, <laughs> because you get into the whole artistic, you know, mm-hmm. interpretation of the work kind of thing. But generally, I cannot think of a situation where that would be a BFOQ. Me neither. Yeah, even with teaching or being a professor or childcare, I can't think of any reason why. You know, you can say, we only want females or we can only have this. Now, I can tell you that in religious situations and with churches, the courts don't like to get too far into the re- your religious philosophies. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a little quirk there sometimes. But just in general, no. So a senior partner who tells you he only wants female assistance. Yeah. Generally, it seems like it wouldn't be allowed in law firms, any kind of BFOQ mm-hmm. defense. I can't see how that could. I can't see how that would be a BFOQ. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, and then here's here's another one that's come up more recently: um, body dysmorphia. So it kind of is in you kind of touched on it in the dress code question, but then you also mentioned. Uh, when we saw you speak previously, that this can also be an ADA matter. Can you explain why that is? Uh, Yes, because body dysmorphia is considered a disability. It is an actual mental condition where the person does not feel that they fit, their body doesn't fit who they are. And so the person can be medically diagnosed as having body dysmorphia. And at that point, it becomes a disability. Uh, I will tell you that in 2009, uh, Congress amended the Americans with Disabilities Act, and we call it the Amended Americans with Disabilities Act. They couldn't get more creative than that. And basically, uh, the Congress amended it because they were concerned that courts were spending too much time trying to decide what was and was not a disability. So they broadened the definition of what could be a disability. So there are a lot of conditions now that were not disabilities early on that the courts consider disabilities now. Uh, body dysmorphia, of course, I think is, is probably not a new condition, but a newly diagnosed condition, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so it falls into that mental emotional disability category. And so how does a small law firm, with all of these different um, situations that they could walk into, if you have 15 employees? Even if you have fewer, right, right, you, right. Know, you should go above and beyond because you may not always have fewer than 15. Right. But how do they stay up to date enough to, to make sure they're doing the right thing, you know, that they're not um, causing a situation that, that could lead to, you know, a liability? What source? Because you're in a bigger firm. So here you are an expert in your firm. Um, but, but how could someone keep up with this? There are uh, a number of associations, you know, B.B. Sherm comes to mind, Big Ben, mm-hmm. Society for Human Resource Management, uh, the National um, Sherm Society for Human Resource Management. Uh, there are also a number of um, non-attorney folks who um, specialize in compliance and consulting, you know, if they don't want to have a retainer with say, a lawyer like me, there are, you know, uh, folks out there who offer those services. Uh, every now and then, as I understand, sometimes the uh, payroll companies, ADP, and some of those types of entities um, also offer those services. Of course, um, one of the things I always suggest is have an HR person whose job it is to manage these kinds of things and whose job it is to try to stay abreast of the changes and whose job it is to notify the powers that be when it's time to train or of new and interesting things that are coming down the pipe. Because it's hard to be for, you know, say, for example, a managing partner to also try to manage all of this as well, because there are so many other issues on his or her plate, so to speak. And I think it's important for organizations, big and small, I mean, you can Google and you'll see any number of big law uh, firms that have faced these issues in a very public manner. Mm -hmm. Um, But for smaller firms, I think it's important to realize that just because they're small, they're not immune from this 
misconduct or from this type of uh, misbehavior uh, by staff, whether it's attorneys or any other non-lawyer staff. Um, And and you mentioned earlier, have someone that's dedicated to handling these issues. And and that goes a big way into showing the culture of, Mm -hmm. of the law firm. So, you know, a lot of times people don't want to report because there is no reporting culture and it's sort of frowned upon. So, I mean, it's a step in the right direction to really have someone focus on these issues and try and improve, even if it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean it can't happen mm-hmm. in the future. So it's, it's just really important to have someone that really cares about the issue and that can address them in the proper, prudent and legal manner. Mm-hmm. And it's important to have the culture that people feel comfortable reporting or know that there's someone they can go to, because as you said, if they don't believe they can report, by the time the managing partner learns about it, it's probably going to be a bigger mess than it necessarily needed to be. And at that point, it's going to end up being more public than it needed to be. And you're absolutely right. Um, Even if you're a small firm, it's not that difficult to inadvertently get to 15 employees. For example, that includes part-time. So you hire a few Mm -hmm. part-time interns here or there or a few partners' kids over the summer, and before Mm -hmm. you know it, there are 20 weeks in that year that you have 15 employees on your books. Right, or if you're a small firm that suddenly merges or or gets bought out by a big firm and suddenly you go from a place where these laws don't apply to a place where they do apply – so it's it's again it's the recommendation is always that you go above and beyond and that you follow these rules because they're there for a reason they set this sort of societal standard of what most of us think is right and wrong so why not <laughs> yes why not exactly so, so much valuable information. And like Carlos said, we could keep you on forever, but we've reached the end of our program. But I want to thank you so much, Deborah Menes, for joining us today. Oh, and thank you very much for uh, the invitation. This is one of the more enjoyable things that I get to do. <laughs> if our listeners have questions or they're looking for other resources, can they find you on social media or uh, the firm's website? Yes, uh, we have a Facebook page, Osley McMullen. Uh, we also have a website uh, that they can locate me on. So, yes, and I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not very good at monitoring it, but I am there. <laughs> Excellent. So if you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar Podcast brought to you by Legal Fuel, the practice resource center of the Florida Bar on Legal Talk Network. I'm Christine Bilbrey. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Florida Bar Podcast. Brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar, Legal Fuel, the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.